All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today I am giving you my rapid reaction to the Falcons' first-round picks in the 2019 NFL Draft of offensive linemen Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. So guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years at FileFans.com, on Twitter, at FileFans, and of course, the host of this illustrious Locked On Falcons podcast. And today on this illustrious podcast, if you were thinking, oh man, I can't wait to see what hot takes Aaron has about the Falcons first round picks, he's going to go in about how the team reached, because I'm going to get my flame fire criticism from Aaron Freeman. I'm sorry, guys. Clearly, you haven't been listening to the podcast recently because then you've missed the entire month of April where this podcast has been devoted to, hey, I think the Falcons should really invest in their offensive line in this year's draft. And everybody talking about trading up for Ed Oliver, you know, seemed to be a little bit misguided. So if you're looking for those flame po- those flame takes, uh, you're not going to find them necessarily here. So let's talk about the Falcons' initial first-round pick and when they took Chris Lindstrom out of Boston College the guard slash tackle at pick 14, a surprise pick. Um, not completely out of left field for me, though, because for those of you that don't know, I do a second Falcons-related podcast. It's called Falcon Central Radio. You can find it on profootballcentral.com. Uh, we had a guest on that show last week in Raekwon Gilbert, who you know was earlier on the Locked on Falcons podcast earlier this month. And one of the questions that we had, we asked Raekwon from a listener was that listener basically asked sort of who is a player that could be sort of this year's Keanu Neal, meaning a guy that most people sort of see as a second round pick or a second round target, but could wind up being the Falcons first round pick. And Raekwon mentioned Chris Lindstrom. Um, and so, you know, thinking about that, it was like, yeah, that if there is going to be a Keanu Neal type of pick, Chris Lindstrom's probably the best choice there in, in that sense. And, and I think it's fair to sort of categorize it as that. I, I don't necessarily look at Lindstrom as sort of, you know, more than a second round pick, in, at least from my initial view. And so I watch more of him probably as I'm, as you guys are listening to this, I'm, I'm sitting there watching cutups of his on YouTube. But I remember when Raekwon said that, he mentioned sort of that Chris Lindstrom had uh, you know, played some right tackle for the Falcons, and obviously the right tackle position, if you've been listening to this podcast, was a much more glaring concern than the guard uh, position uh, post-signing Jamon Brown and James Carpenter back in March. And so I went back and watched Lindstrom against NC State and Clemson in 2017, two games that he started at right tackle for Boston College, and I wasn't that impressed. Um, and so I was like, yeah, he could, he could play right tackle in the, in the NFL, but I don't think he'd be a good right tackle. I think he's a much, much better guard and playing him at right tackle is sort of a disservice to him, which is, you know, sort of the opposite situation I felt with Cody Ford, the guy who I thought the Falcons would take, uh, with that 14th pick who I thought could play guard, but really was better suited to play tackle. But, you know, kudos goes to Raekwon. Um, I think this Lindstrom pick, you know, time will tell sort of how good Lindstrom becomes. I don't absolutely love Lindstrom as a prospect. 
I don't look at him so in the same way that I look at a, a David DeCastro, who several years ago was a top 25 pick and, and the guy that I, you know, died a little bit on the inside when the Falcons gave away that 2012 first round pick to, to move up for Julio Jones and, and missed an opportunity to get David DeCastro, who, in my opinion, could have solidified the Falcons um, right guard position for the last, you know, you know, what, seven seasons, uh, who's a pro bowler type of guy. I don't see Lindstrom in that same category, but I think, you know, looking at last year's interior offensive line class, looking at what was considered a very deep interior offensive line class, I don't put him above Isaiah Wynn, who went you know, 23rd, I think, to the Patriots and is play left tackle. But I would look at him comparably and arguably, I think he's better than sort of how I thought of Frank Ragnow and Billy Price, who went 20 and 21st in last year's draft. I think Lindstrom's better than um, Austin Corbett, who went 33 to the Browns. I think he's better than Will Hernandez, who went 34 to the Giants. You know, in in a zone blocking scheme, I think in a power scheme, Hernandez is better. But um, in in the zone blocking scheme like ours, I think Lindstrom would grade much better than, than I had sort of with Hernandez last year. So the, the idea that sort of like this was a massive reach, I don't necessarily buy. Um, he's certainly a top 40 talent. Um, whether you consider him to be a top 20 talent, obviously is sort of up for debate, but again, I think he's on par with players, if not better than players that were top 21 picks last season. Um, so, you know, maybe they took him 10 spots too early, but I think if he winds up becoming a player comparable to other guards, like a Trey Turner, like an Ali Marpet that we have in the division, uh, a Larry Warford as well, then I don't think anybody's going to be complaining about that, you know, that he wasn't necessarily the highest graded guard that we've seen in recent years. Um, you know, if he's winds up being a solid pro like those guys were now, if he winds up being, you know, Brian Winters or Joe Tooney or something like that, then, then, you know, there's reason to complain. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation revolving around, could the Falcons have traded back and gotten Lindstrom maybe. But one of the things that Thomas Dimitrov mentioned in the presser afterwards where the Falcons had intel that three teams picking after them, but in still inside the top 20 were sniffing around Lindstrom, and that makes sense. You look at Minnesota, Tennessee, Denver, all teams picking 18, 19, and 20. Right after the Falcons had picked 14, they were all connected to Lindstrom in the pre-draft process. All of those teams had significant needs. Denver and Tennessee have massive needs at the right guard position, and Minnesota obviously has needs across their offensive line. So the idea that the Falcons could have jumped back, you know, five or even 10 spots and been guaranteed to get Lindstrom, I don't necessarily buy. Um, so I, I get why the Falcons were like, hey, man, Lindstrom's our guy. Let's just pull the trigger on him right here rather than trying to manipulate the board and risk, you know, taking a lesser player that we're not quite as high on, you know, six spots back, 10 spots back, or whatever the case may be. Nor, you know, there's no guarantee that the somebody w- was willing to trade up and give the Falcons what they were looking for via the trade. Um, so, you know, what is the question now with Lindstrom now and the Falcons already paying Jamon Brown, already paying James Carpenter? What does this mean? Yeah, it means that the Falcons um, didn't do a good job in free agency. That's that's the bottom line. I'm not going to sit here and, and lie to you guys and tell you, you know, the Falcons had this plan all along. They probably they overpaid for Brown and Carpenter uh, because they were desperate. And back, you know, on March 13th, they didn't know that they were going to land Chris Lindstrom. Um, and they looked at a guy like Lindstrom and was like, this guy is a clear upgrade. Why are we going to pass on a good guard just because we, 
you know, quote unquote, made a mistake, um, you know, with signing Brown and Carpenter. Like you, you could have signed one of those guys, but both of them probably not the best strategy, uh, obviously now in hindsight. But, you know, the thing I will say is two wrongs don't make a right. And so if you made a mistake signing those guys, doubling down and basically saying, well, because we we're paying these guys four or five million or whatever it is, now we have to play these guys and we're not we're going to pass up on an obvious upgrade. And, I, you know, wh- whatever you think about Chris Lindstrom, I don't think there's a human being alive that doesn't think Chris Lindstrom is a significant or at least has the potential to be a significantly better starter than what James Carpenter has been the last couple of years and throughout his NFL career and what Jamon Brown have been throughout his NFL career, which frankly, for the most part, have been below average starting guards. And whether you think Chris Lindstrom, again, is the next David DeCastro or, or, or Zach Martin or anything, which I don't think he is, but if he's the next Ali Marpet, that's a massive upgrade. If he's the next Trey Turner, that's a massive upgrade. So we'll sort of have to see how that goes. You know, basically the Falcons have not gotten great interior guard play outside of the 1.7 seasons that Andy Levitri played at left guard in 2016 and 2017. And prior to that, you're basically going back all the way back to 2014 with Blaylocks last year and John Asamoah's one year where you got good, solid interior guard play from the Falcons. You know, prior to Asamoah's arrival, there were three years of a black hole at that right guard position. Chris Chester was a decent stopgap, but no one, you know, even Chris Chester Stan, like myself, is not going to sit here and try to tell you that we got great play from Chris Chester. It was just good enough um, that with the other pieces on the offensive line clicking that you didn't necessarily spend too much time worrying about Chris Chester being bad. But, you know, again, I'm not here to sit here and tell you that this is a great pick. But I think in terms of investing in the offensive line, investing in the interior offensive line and not going with these sort of um, stopgap dollar menu sort of uh, moves that the Falcons have been making, I think this is, you know, relatively speaking, this is a, a, a good pick. Um, so, you know, it's, you know now, we're, now we're eating at the steakhouse rather than eating at the dollar menu. And look, I'm not here to slander the dollar menu. I ate at McDonald's earlier today on Thursday because <laughs> I needed a quick bite to eat before the, the draft happened. And I enjoyed that double quarter pounder with cheese and those chicken nuggets. But you can't eat there every day. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the show. But that's basically what I wanted to say about Chris Chester. We'll move on and talk about sort of the Falcons deciding that they weren't done addressing their offensive line in round one and traded back into the first to get Washington offensive tackle Caleb McGarry. But first, I want to remind you guys that maybe you're not necessarily as keen on my opinions about this draft and you want to get other people's opinions about what the Falcons did in round one. And of course, you can find two draft related podcasts on the Lockdown Podcast Network, Lockdown NFL Draft and the Draft Dudes have you covered. Find them both wherever you get your Lockdown podcasts, including the new Himalaya podcast app, as well as get their insights at thedraftnetwork.com, your team every day. So when the Redskins sort of jumped up into back into round one uh, at pick 26 to get Montez Sweat, and I saw that they gave up their future second round pick, their 2020 second round pick to jump basically from 46 to 26, um, and which the Falcons obviously are picking 45, one spot ahead of them. I was like, oh, that's too rich. The Falcons aren't going to give up a second round pick to move back into round one. Um, 
And so I was just like, yeah, and I tweeted this out, like, oh, the Falcons ain't moving back in round one. You just, they're just going to sit there and wait and maybe wait until, you know, the start of round two and maybe move up in round two or something like that. But, you know, just had to wait a couple more <laughs> minutes and found come to find out the Falcons did move back in round one. And in order to go from 45 to 31 trading with the L.A. Rams, they wound up giving up their third round pick, which, you know, they got a, a relative bargain. Um, but generally speaking, the way the draft works is a third round this year equals a second round next year. So, you know, using weird draft math, they gave up basically the same without having to give up future picks. So now the Falcons are sort of stuck without day two picks now, uh, having moved on from their 45th pick and their 79th pick in the third round. Um, you know, the silver lining, the silver lining for me personally is that I don't have to necessarily see people on Friday morning and Friday afternoon tweeting about who they think the Falcons should take, who they never wind up taking, never, ever take in the second day of the draft. So I, that's no longer gone. But let's talk about Caleb McGarry. Um, I remember going into the senior bowl, watching him and, and feeling like he was a guy that the Falcons would like potentially at that pick 45 if they wound up, uh, you know, not necessarily addressing their offensive line in the first round. Um, he wasn't a guy that I absolutely loved. I thought there were other offensive tackles that I liked more in this draft class, most of whom went in the first round. Um, but I think when you look at McGarry and sort of you're like, what's his ceiling to be? I think his ceiling is potentially a Ryan Schrader type of player who, you know, Schrader at his peak was a top five right tackle. And you look around the landscape around the league, it isn't as if there are that many elite right tackles. So if, if Caleb McGarry winds up being, you know, it's not necessarily this high mountain that he has to climb to be an above average right tackle. So for me, at least I always look at it as what's a player's floor, what's a player's ceiling, and then sort of my projection for what he is, is eye level, what I call eye level, which is basically halfway between the floor and the ceiling. And I think sort of that is, is like a rich man's Rob Havenstein, like basically what Rob Havenstein has been the last couple of years, not necessarily what he was early in his career. I think that's kind of where I expect McGarry to become. So not a, not, you know, he's not going to be Lane Johnson. He's not going to be, you know, that type of guy, but um, maybe, you know, you never know, you know, like uh, I'll go back and watch more of both him and Lindstrom to sort of see, but I think the main thing that McGarry's going to bring is physicality, his run blocking grades. I know at pro football focus were very complimentary of his run blocking grades and whatnot. And you see in some of the clips and some of the games I've seen, that, you know, he's very physical, very has that mean streak, is willing to put guys into the dirt. And so therefore, you know, he fits sort of the hashtag physical mantra that we've been talking about so often over this offseason. And it fits, you know, the Falcons have been telling us since January that this is what they were going to do. They were telling us whenever Dimitrov did an interview back in January, it's like, we got to fix the offensive line. So they've been, you know, they literally were sowing the seeds all along, but, you know, people want to you know, read the the breadcrumbs or eat the breadcrumbs or whatever. I'm butchering that phrase, uh, this metaphor, but you know what I'm talking about. People want to see the things that they want to see. So, you know, why did the Falcons trade up for McGarry and not one of the other offensive linemen? You know, I think after the Texans took uh, Titus Howard at 23, who the Falcons were connected to, uh, who is maybe a guy that they were hoping to get, you know, would be there at pick 45. um, You know, they sort of got a little bit antsy. You know, you had Arizona, you had Jacksonville, you had Tampa Bay, you had Buffalo picking at the top of round two. All of those teams need right tackle help. And Arizona, Buffalo, and Jacksonville all did work out uh, Kayla McGarry 
in the pre-draft process. So I think the Falcons were nervous, and, and Dimitrov indicated this in, in the presser, that you know they got some intel that suggested that Gary wasn't going to last to 45, and they wanted to get ahead of those teams to make sure that they got their guy. But why why McGarry and why not a Jawan Taylor? Why not a Cody Ford? Well, there were medical red flags surrounding Taylor. That's We've discussed that a little bit on this podcast. Apparently, sort of what has come to light in the last 24 hours is that those were knee and back issues with Taylor. Um, and it sounds like at the combine medical rechecks that they do in early April, it sounds like the doctors found something um, you know, that sort of they red flagged it and basically, you know, whatever the case may be, teams weren't necessarily keen on whatever that issue is for Taylor. I don't know the exact nature of it. Um, you know, as for Ford, you know, I thought the Falcons were going to be all in on Ford. As you guys know, he was my sort of official pick for who they would take at pick 14. Um, but the Jason Butt from The Athletic reported this, and I also got another source that sort of corroborated this elsewhere. Of course, I wasn't buying it because basically it was the thing I didn't want to hear, uh, which is, you know, sort of confirmation bias here. But, you know, the Falcons reportedly saw Ford more as a guard than a tackle. And obviously, in hindsight, it makes sense because clearly the Falcons still thought their guard position needed to be addressed. Um, But I imagine they thought Lindstrom was better than Ford as far as a guard. And I certainly understand that because, again, I saw Ford more as a tackle than a guard. Um, and I, I just think he would have been, he would have been okay as a guard, but I don't think he would have been great as a guard. Um, and so the Falcons saw Lindstrom as a, you know, a more valuable guard. And so once they took Lindstrom, seeing that maybe believing that Ford and him sort of had overlap, they weren't necessarily as keen on taking uh, Ford at that point uh, in the draft. So who else, you know, people will say, okay, well, they could have gotten somebody else. Why, why McGarry over Dalton Reisner? Again, maybe the Falcons saw Reisner more as a guard, but at the same time, I, you know, I didn't really love Reisner as a, as a tackle. Um, I think he brings some of the same physicality and mean streak to the table that McGarry does, but given McGarry's size, athleticism, and length, I think McGarry has a much higher ceiling as an offensive tackle than Reisner does. I, I just never really liked Reisner as an offensive tackle, in my opinion. Like he was not even a top fifty talent if evaluating him as an offensive tackle. Um you know, he he may have been a borderline top one hundred talent as an offensive tackle in my eyes. Um so to me the idea that the Falcons would have preferred McGarry over Reisner looking at that offensive tackle position makes perfect sense to me. So um you know right now sitting here today I expect McGarry and Lindstrom to be starting week one for the Falcons. I expect uh, McGarry to potentially beat out Ty Sambrello for that starting right tackle position. It's not a slam dunk by any means, but I, I, I feel reasonably confident that similar to a situation that we saw in 2016, where the Falcons basically were like, you look, the competition is close and we might as well get the, the rookies, let them have, you know, take their lumps and whatnot. We saw this with Deion Jones and Devondre Campbell because, you know, contrary to popular opinion, they didn't really outplay Sean Weatherspoon and Paul Warlow during the preseason, at least from, in my opinion. Uh, obviously, I can't speak to what they were doing in practice and elsewhere every day, uh, which the Falcons coaching staff, but on the field, they weren't out actually outplaying those guys, but because it was close enough and obviously Jones and Campbell brought the speed and, and, the, and had the future upside that the Falcons wanted to develop, they gave those guys the opportunity. And I expect we could see a similar situation with both McGarry and Lindstrom this year. Um, right now, I'm sort of penciling in Lindstrom as a left guard. 
um, just because I, I imagine between the two guys that the Falcons would prefer to start um, at their guard positions in, in Carpenter and Brown, they would prefer Brown just because he's younger. They paid him a little bit more. There's at least more potential with Brown. You're basically getting the, you know, the twilight years of James Carpenter is what you're assuming if you're the Falcons. Um, so, you know, if you're going to plug in Lindstrom right away, it's probably going to be Carpenter's left guard spot, even though I personally think ideally I would rather see Lindstrom play the right guard position. And the reason for that is, is not only did he play right on the right side uh, during his Boston College career, so the transition is going to be easier because he doesn't have to relearn f- footwork, but also because NFL teams tend to slide their protections to the left, which means the right guard more so than the left guard is often left on an island in pass protection because usually what happens more often than not, again, it's, it's, you know, it depends on things like two years ago in that Rams Falcons playoff game, the Rams said their protections to the right because they wanted to give Jamon Brown help against Grady Jarrett. Um, but so it, it depends on matchups, but generally speaking, most teams tend to slide their protections to the left because that's the blind side. Uh, typically you get, you know, I don't know. Traditionally, I guess you you put your better pass rushers on the right side of the defensive line, which is the left side of the offensive line. But so to me, like to me, because I think Lindstrom has the ability to do a better job blocking on an island, blocking those one on ones. I think as a long term solution, he's better playing on the right side. But, you know, at, at really at the end of the day, I'm not going to necessarily split hairs about that. So it's one of those things where I feel like, you know, throwing these guys to the wolves early on may not necessarily net these super positive immediate dividends, but I think you can, you know, we can see glimpses of the future. I think, you know, probably with Lindstrom, if he's going to start, obviously I think it makes sense to start him on the left side. If for no other reason than you plug him in between Jake Matthews and Alex Mack to, you know, stalwarts and, you know, if Mack's going to be helping him out uh, with the Falcons sliding the protections, it, you know, he's not necessarily really being thrown to the wolves. In McGarry's case, playing right tackle, he is, as I've mentioned a number of times in all my Ty Sambrella rants, the quality of pass rushes that the Falcons are going to face, that the right tackle is going to face, the J.J. Watts, the Cam Jordans, etc., um, the Brandon Grahams, uh, Daniil Hunter, you know, these guys, is, is, it's a murderer's row of pass rushers. You know, basically it's Demarcus Lawrence and Ryan Kerrigan and Khalil Mack are like the only guys that he's not going to be facing this year uh, as far as the guys that line up on that side of the field. So, it, you know, you're going to put Mayor Gary out there and he's going to get thrown to the wolves. But one way that the Falcons can help them is by employing more two tight end sets um, and leaving that tight end, presumably Stocker, presumably Paulson, to do a lot more chipping. And this is probably one of the reasons why the Falcons, you know, want to be more of a run first team and, and sort of, you know, get after it and not put McGarry or whoever is that offensive tackle in sort of these situations that they're going to be overmatched for. And so it goes back to that hashtag physical. Um, you know, I think the thing that you like about McGarry and one of the reasons, again, why, you know, I can see him starting over Sam Brelo, even if he doesn't necessarily come in and hit the ground running immediately in campus Similar to the linebacker position, McGarry's going to give you that physicality in a run game that Sam Brayla's not going to give you. Sam Brayla's fine when you get him out in the second level, when you get him out in space and he can sort of take out linebackers. But in terms of the physicality, in terms of the pop off the line of scrimmage, you know, being able to hold the point of attack against defensive ends and defensive tackles, that is not Sam Brayla's game. But McGarry has that potential. And so I think it makes a lot of sense 
given where the Falcons want to be again with that hashtag physicality, uh, that it makes more sense to sort of plug McGarry in and see what he can do. So we'll come back and sort of put a, a button on sort of my thoughts on round one, as well as look ahead to day three of the draft and uh, sort of what the Falcons may do. Um, but before we get there, you know, right after you listen to this podcast, you should go ahead and subscribe and get the Locked On NFL podcast where host Matt Williams sends insight into the first round. You can check that out today on the Himalaya podcast app. In this ever-expanding podcast world, Himalaya has you covered with their personally curated playlists and new features every day. Download it today at your app store. Again, check out the Locked On NFL podcast with host Matt Williamson on Himalaya, your team every day. So, you know, if you had asked me, you know, weeks ago, months ago, whatever, you know, the Falcons' top two picks are going to be Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry, and they'll wind up giving up their third-round pick in order to make one of those picks. What do you think? A plus? I would have been like, no, that's not an A plus. I don't even know if I get that a B plus. But again, I'll dig deeper on these guys. We'll see sort of maybe I'll come around and be like, oh, these guys are much better than my sort of initial impressions are. Because again, I've watched maybe like two Washington games for McGarry just to go to get a feel for him and maybe four or so Boston College games, two of which he's going to be playing right tackle, which is probably not what he's going to play here in Atlanta. So it's not necessarily a fair impression. And, you know, later on, you know, as we get guests and and I do my own sort of scouting reports and devoting an entire 30 minute episode, breaking these guys' strengths and weaknesses, watching that, I'm going to watch many more games. So my opinion on these guys could change in the coming days. Um, So we'll see. Um, You know, let's talk a little bit about not trading up in this draft, as there were many rumors, my personal opinion, I thought all along that stuff was smoke. I talked about that on yesterday's episode. Thomas Dimitrov mentioned in the presser on Thursday night that the team wasn't looking to move up from 14, but they did have conversations with teams about it. Now, who knows if he's telling the whole truth about that statement, because basically if anything he says that doesn't suggest that they were wholeheartedly all in on Chris Lindstrom as their number one pick is not necessarily something that they're, you know, is going to be great for PR purposes. So, you know, he's not probably not going to tell us the whole truth on that. But, you know, for now, if for no other reason than my own confirmation bias and for me to, you know, say I told you so, <laughs> I'm going to believe that it's true, that they probably had conversations. They might have even gotten in negotiations. But as I suggested in previous episodes, they probably found the price tag a little bit too rich uh, in order to make that trade. Because, again, they're probably not just giving up just a third-round pick. Um, So, you know, I think this really is a draft where basically my sort of final thoughts on it is you reap what you sow. This has been my mantra for many, many years. And, you know, to me, the idea of the Falcons going into 2019 with Jamon Brown, James Carpenter, and Ty Sambrillo, you know, starting at three out of their five offensive line spots, was, as I've mentioned a number of times on this podcast over the last several weeks, was just a non-starter for me. It's just like... You know, are we going to be sitting here six months from now and looking at Chris Lindstrom going up against Aaron Donald and Caleb McGarry going up against J.J. Watt and being like, hey, man, our rookies shut those all-pro future Hall of Famers down? No, we're not going to say that. You know, I would like to believe that, you know, single-handedly these picks are going to do what they've done for teams like Cleveland and Indianapolis and, and turn around their offensive line and suddenly we'll go from a team that was one of the worst offensive lines, at least in certain metrics last season to one of the best offensive lines. I'd like to believe that, but look, there's only so much positivity and optimism that we're going to have on the Lockdown Falcons podcast. And that one is not where that's not a, 
an ocean I'm willing to cross at this point in time. So, you know, I, I sit here and say that I think these moves aren't necessarily going to do the most to improve the team in 2019, but I think for the long-term health of this football team, these are absolutely the right moves. Whether you think they're the best players that the Falcons could have got, okay, that's debatable. But in terms of investing in their offensive line and getting at least two good, solid players, whether they're great remains to be seen. But I think absolutely getting investing in their offensive line is, is great. I went back recently and looked at how many quarterback hits allowed during the regular season over the last five years for all, all 32 NFL teams. And the Falcons gave up 479 quarterback hits over the last five seasons combined, which is an average of 96 per season or six per game. That number is the 10th highest number in the entire NFL. And when you factor in how many times the Falcons have dropped back the pass, that actually becomes worse. It's the sixth worst, you know, hit rate per drop back in the entire NFL. And so you just look at the total hits that they've given up. They're on par with teams like the Vikings, teams like the Jaguars, teams like the the Dolphins, all who've given up in that 478 to 484 hit range uh, around where the Falcons are. And those are three teams that have had notoriously bad offensive lines within the last five or so years of the, in the NFL. And so, you know, I've talked about a number of times on this podcast recently about sort of the Falcons Super Bowl window and potential and how long do they have. And I've said things like, as long as Matt Ryan's the quarterback of this team, they got five to seven years. If Matt Ryan plays five to seven years, they're going to have five to seven years a window. But here's the thing, guys. Matt Ryan's not going to last five to seven years if he's going to get hit a hundred times a year. Like he's been getting hit consistently over the course of his career. Not, you know, he can, he may be able to take that punishment at age 31 or 32 or now 33, but he's not going to be able to take that punishment at age 35 and 36 and 37. It's just not going to happen. And you can just look at a team like the Giants and look what happens when a quarterback takes too many hits and gets shell-shocked. Anytime a defensive player breathes in the direction of Eli Manning, he crumbles. And if you think, oh, well, that's not going to be Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan, like, Look, my friends, all you got to do is go back and go and watch the film of the games where Matt Ryan's getting hit 8, 9, 10, 12 times, 14 times like in some of the games last year. And look at sort of his pocket presence, dude. And if you if you think he's going to that's not going to, you know, that's a non-issue, my friends, you need to watch a little bit more film. So, I want to save Matt Ryan from being that dude. Okay? I want to do everything in my power to basically have Matt Ryan feeling just breathing easy like a Tom Brady at age 37, 38, and just be like, look, I got all day in the pocket. Why do you think the Saints are, are still cooking? Because they have a good offensive line, and, and, and Drew Brees has got all day in the pocket. When we play the Saints, he don't have to worry about any players getting in his face. He's got all day to throw, right? That's what I want for Matt Ryan, and I'm hoping that Lindstrom and McGarry are getting us there, okay? And if you're asking me, do I like these picks because I think it saves us from that? You're absolutely right. To me, Andy Levitri and Brandon Fusco and Jam- Jamal Brown and James Carpenter and Tyson Brelo, you know, and sitting here thinking, oh, we're, we're going to get there with those guys. Like, come on, man. You think you're going to be able to, again, you, these dollar menu investments that the Falcons have been making in their offensive line over the last five years and not have to use first and second and third round picks in order to make it work like you guys are absolutely crazy 
and this is this is you know not to go on too much of a rant here to close out this episode, but this has been part of my frustration. While everybody else is worried about trading up for Ed Oliver and, and talking about Dexter Lawrence and talking about Brian Burns and Christian Wilkins and who's the best pass rusher and who's this and all that, and I'm sitting here saying like, why are you guys sitting here pretending that Jamon Brown and James Carpenter and Tyson Raylor are good? You guys are literally the this is fine gif where the house is burning down looking at this offensive line as if the falcons have done anything on their offensive line in the last you know eight weeks to improve their offensive line you guys are sitting here lying to yourselves convincing you oh well tyson brelo's good and he's fine we don't need a right tackle we don't need to invest in the right tackle because tyson brelo's gonna be just fine remember those three games he had at the end of last season when he was so good against Benson Mayoa, and we're going to need that. That's going to be very valuable to us when we're playing the Eagles in the NFC Championship game, when we're playing the Rams in the NFC Championship game. Oh, yeah, man. You see how well he played against Benson Mayoa and, and um, you know, Wes Horton? Oh, man, yeah, he's ready to go against Brandon Graham and Daniel Hunter in week one and two. You guys are crazy, right? You're sitting there telling me that you watched Jamon Brown? And you watch four years of this dude in, in L.A. and New York, and you're like, that guy's good. Like, you're out of your minds, guys. And Lord knows James Carpenter. Like, we all know James Carpenter's not good. Look, I would love for these guys to make me eat crow, guys. I would love for it. But you're sitting there acting like you're more. Com- you're sitting there more confident in those three guys starting games for the Falcons than you are for... Adrian Claiborne and Tack McKinley and Grady Jarrett and Deion Jones and Keon. Like, look, I'm the first person to sit here and be like, the defense is bad, guys. I'm the first person to sit here and say that the Falcons got to get a better pass rush if this defense is, is going to be anything worth a damn. I'm, I'm there with you guys. But if this offense can't score 30 points a game this year, they're not doing anything. They're not going to be winning games. Ed Oliver, Christian Wilkins, or Dexter Lawrence ain't turning this defense from worst to the best in the league. They're not winning games 20 to 17. You're going to ride or die for the next five to seven years if that's your Super Bowl window on how good your offense is. We can make improvements for the defense. We got young horses. We got young foundation pieces there. But you need to fix this offensive line or else this season is going down the drain, my friend. And again, whether some rookies are going to fix the problem immediately, yeah, that's probably being a little bit overly optimistic. I won't say naive. We'll say overly optimistic. But if you don't invest in in this position now, when are you going? You know it takes three plus years for these offensive linemen to be good. So you're going to wait three years and then hope that you find the, the next Zach Martin, the next Taylor Decker that's an instant Quality starter, the next Quentin Nelson. Good luck. Good luck. Get these guys now and let them cook. Okay? So, you know, that's that's the end of my rant. I'm, I'm sure I got another one in me next week <laughs> when I'm running on fumes or later this weekend. Right? But, you know, what are the Fox going to do in day three? This is the last point I'll make. I expect them to now address their depth. I, I'm not expecting them to trade up into the second day of the draft. They could, but I I, I doubt it because, like, who are you going to go get? Like, what third-round pick are you going to be like, oh, my God, this third-round pick that we were thinking about taking, you know, 
I don't know, whenever, like, we got to go get this guy. I don't see it happening, particularly given what you'll probably have to pay to do so. I think now you just look for depth. And I'm expecting them to address their cornerback position. I, I would be surprised if one of those two fourth-round picks that they have uh, on Saturday isn't a cornerback. Um, you know, I expect them to address their defensive line, um, the, to bolster that rotation. That's been something that we've been talking about. But I'll be honest with you, and I know some people will be like, oh, you, this is hindsight. But I didn't think this, this draft class was all that great up front on the defense. Like, I think there were five really good players, Burns, Bosa, Quinnen, Jeffrey Simmons, and Ed Oliver. But once you got past those guys, it's, this draft class to me was not anything special. So that's been part of the reason why I haven't been necessarily as gung-ho on like, hey, man, we got to get this pass rusher, you know, at 14. We got to go up and get our pass rusher. We need to double dip on, on the defensive line with our first two picks. Because, like, people, you know, oh, this, this interior defensive line class is good. The 2016 draft class was better. Again, once you got past the top three guys, and, and of course, one of those guys in Simmons had major issues involving, you know, an injury where he might miss at least half of the season, if not the entire season. But once you got past those three guys, like, this wasn't special. That 2016 interior defensive line class was better than this, right? The, the one that included Sheldon Rankins and Chris Jones and those guys, right? The edge group, well, come on, man. The 2017 edge group blew the, this year's group after you got past Burns and Bosa away. The year that Tack and TJ Watt and Derek Barnett and all those guys came out, Carl Lawson, like, come on, like, this this draft class wasn't anything like that. So, like, the the idea that the Falcons needed to, like, th- that's part of the reason why I've sort of shifted from, you know, pass rush, pass rush, pass rush guy, if you listen to the podcast during the season and shortly thereafter, to, like, hey, man, this offensive line looks to be a problem. So, you know, I think we'll still address the defensive line, but to me, sort of the value of this draft, kind of, if you weren't going to get one of those big five guys was kind of in round threes and four where it sort of meshes more with those previous years where I think you're getting comparable value, you know, in the late third, in the fourth, in the fifth round, potentially as, you know, those 2016 and 2017 classes. So I expect the Falcons to sort of address their depth on their defensive line rotation. We'll see if they address any other depth positions on their offense, running back, tight end being question marks. I expect them to get a kick returner at wide receiver. Um, but they don't have to do that, again, because they got Kenyon Barner and they brought back Justin Hardy. So they don't have to do that, but I certainly think that's something that they want to do. So if the right player is there, then they'll pull the trigger on that guy. Uh, a Miko Hardman, a Deontay Johnson, someone like that. Uh, you know, We'll also sort of see if they take a linebacker. I do think that's going to be a position that they do want to address. They, I think they do want to get some insurance for the potential loss of Devondre Campbell next year, some insurance for the possibility that Foye Olakun isn't quite to the level of starting that they, they want him to be and that we all, including myself, hope that he can and think he's capable of. But, you know, having an insurance policy, you don't want to go back to the Duke Wiley, um, you know, era. So, you know, having another guy that you can sort of turn to, I think makes a lot of sense. So we'll see if the Falcons address those positions. So, you know, the last point I'll say before we get out of here, I do think today's moves um, do indicate that Brandon Fusco is no longer in the team's long-term plans. I will be surprised if he makes it on the team on week one. You know, I don't know if the Falcons will cut him before camp or 
during camp or whatever. I know because he's coming off an injury that may affect the timetable because there's rules against basically cutting injured players or you have to do certain things to, in order to cut a guy when he's hurt uh, for obvious reasons, uh, you know, labor laws and whatnot, collective bargaining stuff. So I don't know when Fusco will get hurt but or when Fusco will be moved on from, but sometime between June 2nd and, you know, September 9th or whenever the season starts. I can't remember the date off the top of my head. Um, is when I expect the Falcons to move past Fusco. I think the addition of Lindstrom, having Carpenter, having Schweitzer, having um, Brown means that unless Fusco's going to win that backup center job and be sort of your replacement for uh, Alex Mack on, in, in the event of an injury, that's really the only way that he can save his job. And I think right now you can expect him and Schweitzer to compete for that job. Um and look, it wouldn't completely shock me if the Falcons took another offensive lineman, like a center, like a Lamont Gilliard or somebody like that, or Rosh Piercebacher, you know, at some point on day three of the draft. Wouldn't completely shock me. I won't expect it, but it wouldn't be like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. How could the Falcons draft three offensive linemen? They needed three offensive linemen, guys. They needed it. They, they really needed more than that. But, like, we'll take three. So there we have it. Um, an interesting day, surprising day. As I always say, I, like I tried to be as open-minded as possible and they still, <laughs> still caught you off guard, guys. I keep telling you guys, they're going to zig when you think they're going to zag, man. You got to be, you just got to go into this thing open-minded. You, you just can't go into it locked in on one sort of outcome. And you, even myself being as open-minded as possible still was like, oh, well, here's Cody Ford. Nope. No, my friends. So there you have it. Another interesting night one of another draft for the Atlanta Falcons. We'll come back tomorrow, and and if we don't trade back into day two, you know, I'll give you more thoughts on what I thought of Lindstrom and McGarry based off of what I watched on Friday. So there you have it, guys. Uh, I'm more than welcome to hear your feedback. Uh, you can do so on Twitter at Locked On Falcons, on Facebook at Locked On Falcons. Or via email at lockedonfalcons at mail.com, or you can leave a comment at falcons.com where the podcast is posted daily. Talk to you guys tomorrow. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day.